0: bonus episode, as I have finally finished the first part of my reading of Marx and Lennon on the Paris Commune, There is also a rather wide selection of books available on the eBay store, new titles being added weekly. So again, if any of that interests you, the links to both of these will be in the description of this episode. Anyway, without further ado, on with the show. The year was 1428. The Hundred Years' War between the kingdoms of France and England was raging. For the past hundred or so years, France had been subjected to devastating on-and-off warfare. The prospects of the Kingdom of France were grim indeed. Its fate hinged on the siege of Orléans. Should the English succeed and the city fall, the English could end the war and install their king upon the throne of France for good. Then, suddenly, a peasant girl named Joan of Arc rallied French forces against the English, ending the siege and ensuring that the French could live on to fight another day. In this series on the life of Joan of Arc, I intend to retell Joan's story, from her humble origins, her meteoric rise, and tragic fall. Before we begin talking about Joan herself, however, I feel like we must first examine the world into which she was born. The Hundred Years' War was an extremely convoluted conflict that does warrant quite a bit of explanation. The two principal combatants of the Hundred Years' War were the Kingdom of France and the Kingdom of England. Since the Norman invasion, the Kingdom of England had held extensive territories in what we now consider to be France. These territories included the Duchies of Normandy and Anjou in the north of the country, and, more importantly, the Duchy of Aquitaine in the south. The King of England did not enjoy absolute authority over these territories, however. The way it worked was that these lands were not a part of the Kingdom of England, but rather parts of the Kingdom of France, which just so happened to be ruled by the King of England. Thus, the King of England was not only the King of England, but also the Duke of Normandy, of Aquitaine, and so on. As one can imagine, this made the relationship between France and England rather complicated, to say the very least. The King of England resented being a theoretical vassal of the King of France, and wished to exercise his absolute authority in the territories that he felt were his by birthright. The King of France, on the other hand, was seeking to centralize his state, which inevitably led to conflict with England. Between the year 1100 and the beginning of the Hundred Years' War in 1337, England and France had fought about a dozen conflicts with one another, with the issue at hand being, more often than not, the status of these aforementioned territories. So, to recap, England held territory that technically belonged to the Kingdom of France, making the English kings vassals of France but still allowing the English a great deal of political autonomy. Conflicts of varying intensity had been waged over the status of these territories for about 200 years. This brings us up to the year 1328, when matters became a whole lot more complicated. In that year, King Charles IV of France died prematurely, without leaving behind a male heir. The late king's nearest blood relative was Edward of Windsor, also known as King Edward III of England. By right of being the late king's closest blood relative, Edward should have been well within his rights to inherit the throne of France itself, thereby unifying the two kingdoms, and potentially putting an end to these centuries of petty squabbling once and for all. The French nobility, who certainly did not want to be ruled over by an English king, all assembled in Paris, and came to the conclusion that, while Edward was indeed the closest living relative of the deceased king of France, he was only so by virtue of his mother. Using the laws of primogeniture, his claim could be discounted in favor of the king's nearest relative by virtue of male descent. This person was Philip, the Count of Valois. Philip was considered to be a far better candidate for the throne simply by virtue of the fact that he was French and had grown up in France his entire life. And so it was that on the 29th of May, 1328, Philip of Valois was crowned King Philippe VI. At this time, Edward made no protest, but he clearly harbored resentment towards the new King of France, as, in 1337, he refused to pay homage to him. The Kingdom of France retaliated to Henry III's disobedience by attempting to confiscate from him the Duchy of Aquitaine. Henry III retaliated in turn by reasserting his claim to the throne of France and challenging Philippe VI to a trial by combat thereby starting the conflict known to history as the Hundred Years' War. Historians divide the Hundred Years' War into three distinct phases, the Edwardian, the Caroline, and the Lancastrian. The former two are not so relevant to our narrative. The first Edwardian phase saw England dominate, and the second Caroline phase saw the French make a resurgence. In 1415, King Henry V of England reasserted his claim to the French throne and invaded Normandy, thus resuming the war after two and a half decades of relative calm. Later that year, the French army encountered the English at Agincourt, where they were soundly defeated. Now at this time, there was a rift in French society between the two rival branches of the royal family, the Armagnacs, supporters of the House of Orléans, and the Burgundians, supporters of the House of Burgundy. The causes of their conflict are likewise obscure, but they had to do with the status of another French vassal, the Duchy of Burgundy, an unwieldy amalgam of an interrelated principalities in the east of France and in the modern-day Low Countries, Reed, Belgium and the Netherlands. Anyway, upon the initial invasion of Henry V, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs were on the verge of securing an alliance against the English. On the 10th of September, 1419, the French Dauphin the French term for the crown prince, the future king Charles VII, met with the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless, to discuss the terms of such an alliance. Tensions ran high, however, and the meeting ended with a member of Charles's retinue slaying the Duke of Burgundy. His successor, Duke Philippe the Good, then made an alliance with England against the crown of France. Now possessing a clear advantage over the French, Henry V imposed upon them the Treaty of Troy which stipulated that the crown of France should go to him and his heirs upon the death of the current king, the actively dying King Charles VI, also known as Charles the Mad. Coincidentally, both Henry V and Charles the Mad both died in the year 1422, within months of each other. Henry V's son, only months old at the time, was crowned King Henry VI of England upon his father's death, and, as per the terms of the treaty, He was crowned King of France upon the death of Charles VI. Despite all this, many of the French lords, especially in the south of the country, remained loyal to the son of Charles VI, the disinherited Dauphin Charles, whom many saw as the rightful King of France. However, King Charles VII had yet to be officially crowned. With the city of Rheims, the traditional crowning location of the Kingdom of France, under Anglo-Burgundian control, such a thing was impossible for the time being. The English armies, meanwhile, continued to move southward to consolidate their control over the country. In the autumn of 1428, they came upon the Armagnac, and henceforth I'll just be referring to the Armagnac faction as the Royalists so as to avoid any confusion, and to avoid me having to say that name anymore. Anyway, the English army came upon the Royalist holdout of Orléans and put the city to siege in autumn of 1428. Should Orléans fall the English would be within striking distance of the Dauphin stronghold at Bourges. One more decisive English victory against the French on the battlefield, and the Kingdom of France might be very well lost to the English for good. Now, all this talk of kings and dukes and Dauphins is to say nothing of the experience of the average French peasant. It should suffice to say that 100 years of conflict had taken their toll upon the nation of France. Because of the English naval victory at the Battle of Sluys, where the French navy was annihilated. The French were unable to execute an invasion of England. Thus, all the action of the Hundred Years' War took place on French soil. According to historians, the vast majority of casualties of the Hundred Years' War were French civilians. Between the Black Death, which was contemporary with the second phase of the war, and the war itself, the population of France was depleted by nearly half. A quote from Joan of Arc biographer Regine Pernod, quote, the ferocity of the conflict banished the restraints of chivalric warfare. Between major campaigns, companies of mercenary soldiers made an easy and pleasurable living from pillage, raping, and the indiscriminate slaughter of a population that had long since lost the habit of self-defense during the Capetian peace. Fair France had not been so savage since the time of the Vikings, five centuries before. End quote. In fact, such devastation was not merely the unintended result of kings hiring and subsequently underpaying untrustworthy mercenaries. In fact, these devastating raids were part of a deliberate English strategy. It was thought that these raids would prove the inability of the French nobles to protect the peasants under their lordship, thereby undermining the French cause from the bottom up. This actually did work as intended, as in 1358, a group of peasants from an area north of Paris staged a bloody revolt known as the Jackery, considered to be the most significant revolutionary action to have taken place in France prior to 1798. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I tell you all this so you can better understand why it was that, in 1289, when Joan of Arc claimed that she had been sent by God to save France, you can better understand why such a claim might be believed. After all, there was a prophecy in those days that the kingdom of France would be saved by a woman on horseback. And that brings us to Joan herself. The woman who would become known as the Maid of Orléans was born in the village of Domremy, located in what is commonly understood to be the region of Lorraine in eastern France. Joan's exact year and date of birth are unknown, as medieval record-keeping was notoriously shoddy, although Joan understood herself to be around 19 years old at the time of her trial in 1431, suggesting that her year of birth was 1412. Her parents were Jacques d'Arc and Isabella Romay. They were peasants, but they were by no means the lowest of the low. The family owned fifty acres of land, and Jacques was able to supplement his income with a position as a village official. At that time, Domremy was a part of the Duchy of Bar, a polity that had remained loyal to the French crown, despite being surrounded by Burgundian held territory. Joan later alleged that she knew of at least one Burgundian who lived in the village and she wished that she could have, quote, cut his head off, but only if it pleased God, end quote. At least once in Joan's early childhood, her village was subject to a Burgundian raid, during which her and her family fled to the nearby town of Neufchateau. For the most part, however, Joan's early childhood was rather uneventful. She was an average girl of peasant stock. She helped out with housework, occupying her time with spinning and weaving and other duties that were, at the time, considered to be women's work, although she occasionally helped her father out in the fields. Joan, like the vast majority of other peasants, was illiterate. There was neither the time nor the resources for her to learn how to read. By the accounts of the other inhabitants of Domremy, who knew her growing up, Joan was a, quote, good, simple, sweet, and good-natured girl of good behavior. She was pious, fearing both God and his saints. She was brought up in the Christian religion and full of good ways. End quote. Most of these accounts fixate, perhaps with the benefit of retrospect, on Joan's piety. Many note that Joan went to church on a daily basis, and often partook in the sacrament of confession. They also tend to mention her frequent pilgrimages to the Hermitage of Notre-Dame de Vermont, where she offered devotions to St. Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. So far, Joan's story seems rather unremarkable, but it is around the age of 13 where things begin to get interesting. According to Joan herself, When I was thirteen years old I heard a voice from God to help me govern my conduct, and the first time I was very fearful, and came this voice around the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I had not fasted on the eve of the the preceding day. I heard the voice on the right-hand side, towards the church, and rarely do I hear it without a brightness. The brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard, and it is usually a great light. The voice was sent to me by God, and after I thrice heard this voice, I understood it to be the voice of an angel. The voice always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. End quote. Joan claimed to understand that this voice was that of Saint Michael the Archangel, one of the most important figures in medieval Catholicism, an angel with unspeakable power who is the leader of God's armies. Later on, Joan claimed to be visited by two other voices those of St. Catherine of Alexandria and of St. Margaret the Virgin, two early martyrs for the Christian cause in the days of the Roman persecution. Apparently, St. Michael did most of the talking, while Saints Catherine and Margaret mostly exhorted Joan to follow his commands. But what was it that these voices instructed her to do? Before all things, Joan would later say, he told me to be a good child and that God would help me, and among other things, he told me to come help the kingdom of France." The angel told me of the pitiful state that was in the kingdom of France." End quote. Over time these instructions became more specific. She was told to drive the English out of France, and to see that Dauphin Charles was crowned as King Charles the seventh. At the age of seventeen, Joan claims she was told by these voices to leave her home, and to travel to the fortress of Vaucouleurs and talk to the commander of the garrison there, one Robert de Baldercourt. This Robert de Baldricourt would give her the arms and men necessary to make war against the English who were, at that very moment, laying siege to the city of Orléans, as we have previously discussed. She dared not tell anyone her intentions, for fear that her father would prevent her from going. She did, however, tell her uncle, who agreed to accompany her on at least this leg of the journey. And so it was that Joan, accompanied by her uncle, left her home in secret at the age of seventeen, bound for the fortress of Valculeur as she had been instructed by the angels. It was not a long journey from the town of Domremy to Valcalur. She arrived in the town on Ascension Day, 1428, which that year happened to fall on May 13th. Somehow she was able to secure an audience with Robert de Baldricor right away. Joan informed the knight that she had been sent by someone who she only referred to as the Lord of Heaven to assist the Dauphin and deliver unto him the crown of France. The knight and his companions were incredulous, Joan was laughed out of the room. Robert told her uncle to escort her home immediately, and to give her a slap or two for her impertinence. Joan, however, was not one to be deterred. On February 13th of the following year, Joan returned once more to Valcolleur. Once more she received an audience with Robert de Baldercourt, and once more de Baldracourt rebuffed her and had her sent away. This time, Joan had piqued the curiosity of two of Baldricourt's soldiers, Jean de Metz and Bertrand de Poligny. Upon being questioned by them as to her motives, Joan replied, quote, I must be at the king's side, for there is indeed nobody in this world, neither king nor duke, nor any other who can recover the kingdom for France. And there will be no help for the kingdom if not for me, although I would have rather remained spinning by my mother's side, for it is not my condition." Yet I must go, and I must do this thing, for my lord wills that I do so." End quote. Jean and Bertrand were so taken by Joan's spiel that they agreed to intercede on her behalf to their commander. Jean de Metz would later be quoted as saying that, quote, "...Joan's words put me on fire, inspiring in me a love for her that I believe was divine." Upon the third meeting between Joan of Arc and Robert de Valdracourt, the captain relented, and agreed to grant Joan an armed escort to the town of Chinon, where the Dauphin had set up court. The inhabitants of Valcalur, who were likewise enamoured with Joan, provided her with travelling clothes and a horse. The journey to Chinon would not be easy, however. First of all, it was quite far away. It would take twelve days at least to get there by horse. Also, they would have to travel through enemy territory, Thus, they did most of their actual traveling at night, so as to avoid the roving bands of English and Burgundian soldiers. Joan lamented the fact that, while they were traveling through hostile lands, she was unable to attend mass daily, as she had done before. Joan and her party arrived at Chinon at dusk on the twelfth day, and entered the castle. Joan, given her rural background, was quite impressed with the castle, later reporting that there were over fifty torches and three hundred knights, all in shining armor. Once she entered the castle's great hall, Joan encountered a dozen noblemen, each more richly dressed than the last. She picked the Dauphin out from amongst this crowd and came before him. One of the nobles present was quite impressed by the fact that Joan, quote, made the curtsies and reverences that are customarily made to a king as though she had been nourished at the court her entire life, Dauphin Charles addressed her, saying that he was not the king. He pointed to another one of the noblemen, and said that that man was king. Joan, despite having never seen the man before in her life, insisted, saying to him, quote, by God's grace it is you, gentle prince, and none other. She had later said that it was the angels who had guided her that had pointed him out from among the crowd. Then Joan got down to business. She delivered unto the would-be king the pronouncement that she had trekked halfway across the country to deliver. She, Joan the Maid, was to lead the king's forces to victory at Orléans, and afterwards she was to escort the king to the city of Rheims, where he was to be officially crowned as King Charles VII. The Dauphin and his lords naturally had all sorts of questions for her. For instance, who had sent her? She told them that she had been sent by the King of Heaven, who had taken great pity upon France. With his divine assistance, the siege at Orléans would be lifted, and Charles would be crowned king at Rheims. Then she took the Dauphin aside for a conversation, the details of which have been lost to history. Not even during her trial did Joan reveal what it was she said to Charles in private that day. But whatever it was, it seems to have made a great impression upon the Dauphin. Before their conversation, Charles was quote, suffering great adversity. He found himself brought so low that he no longer knew what to do. End quote. He had apparently been spending the preceding days praying fervently that, if he was, indeed, the true heir of the French kingdom, that God deliver unto him that which was his, and, if not, at the very least, allow him to escape to the safety of Scotland or Spain with his life intact. Apparently, the Dauphin had doubts of the legitimacy of his claim. Rumors had been circulated by his enemies that he was of illegitimate birth. It has been suggested that Joan offered the king assurance that, he, that she had been, indeed, sent by God, an assurance that he was indeed the son of the late king, and that it was his God-given right to rule France. Something about this, as author Regine Pernault points out, must have felt comforting, perhaps even miraculous. Nevertheless, the veracity of Joan's case had to be determined, and it was for this reason that Charles had Joan sent to the nearby town of Poitiers, where the university professors of the University of Paris, who had remained loyal to the French cause after the Burgundian takeover of the city, were. These professors cross-examined Joan to no end, repeatedly asking her who she was and why she had come all this way, and time and again she told them everything, that she had been bade by God to leave her home and to travel to Valcolleur, whereupon she would meet a captain who would grant her safe passage to Chinon, whereupon she would meet the Dauphin, and so on and so forth. At Poitiers, she did give a more thorough explanation of her aims, quote, First, she said that the English would be driven away, and thus the siege they laid to the city of Orléans would be lifted. Next, she said the king would be consecrated at Rheims. Then, she said that the city of Paris would return to the king's obedience. And fourth, that the Duke of Orléans, a relative of the king who was being held hostage in England, would return. End quote. Writing years later, the author noted that all four things had indeed come to pass, The theologians among the professors, however, cast doubt on Joan's claim that God had pity for the kingdom of France, and wished to save it. If that was the case, then, why did Joan require weapons and armies? Joan explained that the soldiers would do the fighting, and that God would deliver the victory. This explanation pleased even the most seasoned theologians who were present. While Joan's theological arguments seemed to be airtight, the professors still felt that they had to verify Joan's personal moral standing. They dispatched agents to Joan's hometown to inquire after her upbringing, and they returned with the knowledge that Joan was, indeed, a simple, well-meaning peasant who dutifully observed the Catholic faith. Joan herself, meanwhile, was rather anxious to get into the action. She practically begged her interrogators to allow her to get on to Orléans. Before she could, however, the professors had one last thing they needed to verify her virginity, thereby proving that she had dedicated herself entirely to God, and that she was not in league with the devil, as was a common suspicion at the time. The professors did themselves did not undertake this examination. A number of noble women took this duty. Once Joan's virginity had been verified, she was permitted to return to the court in Chinon, bearing in hand the professor's endorsement that, quote, "...in her we find no evil, but only good, humility, virginity, devotion, honesty, and simplicity." Rather pleased with this development, Dauphin Charles decided to allow Joan to go forward with her plan. He vested her with the authority of a captain in the French army, and dispatched her to the city of Tours, where he was gathering his forces for an attack on Orléans. At Tours, Joan was to receive a suit of armor and a banner to her customization that she would carry into battle. This banner depicted the Christian god as a medieval king, seated in heaven, flanked by two angels, each bearing a fleur-de-lis. Under all this were emblazoned the names of Jesus and Mary. She claimed to have seen in a vision. Twice a day she would assemble all the priests who followed the army, and they would all pray around the banner. When the time came to give her a weapon, Joan refused to accept any sword. She wanted a specific one, one that had been shown to her in one of her visions. She told one of her pages of the sword's location. It was in the church at St. Catherine de Fierbois, buried beneath the altar. Her page may have scoffed at being sent to retrieve it, but sure enough, he found it exactly where Joan had said it would be. Again, the location of the sword, she claimed, had been revealed to her in a dream, despite the fact that she had never set foot in this specific church in her entire life. From the moment that Joan arrived at Tours, she enacted a strict disciplinarian regime on the men now under her command. She forbade any men to swear in her presence, and she chided anyone who dared to do so. Soldiers were not allowed to participate in the bi-weekly prayer session around the banner unless they had first undergone the sacrament of confession. She also did not tolerate any women to be in the company of the army, unless the soldier in question was willing to take her as a wife. On one occasion, when she caught a prostitute in her camp, she allegedly chased her from the premises, sword drawn. She did not kill this woman, but merely reprimanded her, warning her that if she was ever caught in the presence of her men again, that she would have to do something that would, in her words, not please her. She also did not countenance any looting, despite the fact that such activities were essentially a mainstay of medieval warfare. If she discovered that any food presented before her was looted, she refused to eat it on principle. The soldiers now under Joan's command would likely not have tolerated this had Joan not, one, exuded an aura of purity that amazed all of them, and two, shown a natural aptitude for the martial arts not only in the physical act of fighting, but in tactics and in strategy as well. A quote from one of her men, quote, Joan, in most matters, was very simple, but in the matter of war she was very expert, in the management of the lance, as in drawing up of the army in the order of battle and in preparing the artillery. Quote. The likelihood that the illiterate Joan would have been able to study such things in her younger age is quite low, but nevertheless, Joan proved to be a natural... Could her tactical prowess be attributed to her visions? One can only theorize. On March 22nd, 1429, Joan dictated a letter addressed to the English who were besieging the city of Orléans at that time, entreating them to surrender. This missive read in part, Surrender to the maid, who is sent here from God, the King of Heaven, the keys to all the good cities that you have taken and violated in France. She is ready to make peace, but if you do not do so... Know that I am the commander of these armies, and in whatever place I will meet you and your Burgundian allies, I shall make them leave the country, whether they wish to or not. If they will not obey, I shall have them all killed. I am sent from God to chase you all out of France, every last one of you, and you have no other option, for you shall never hold the kingdom of France from God. King Charles, the true heir, shall hold it, because God, the king of heaven, wishes it to be so. If you do not believe this message from God through the maid, then wherever we find you we will strike you there, and cause a great uproar, greater than any made in France for a thousand years. Firmly believe that the King of Heaven will send the maid, more force than you will ever know how to overcome with all your assaults on her and her men-at-arms, and in the exchange of blows, we will see who is favored by the King of Heaven." And it is with these boastful words that I will leave the narrative for today. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to watch Joan travel to Orléans and fulfill her destiny. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, etc., you can address them to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which will be found in the episode's description. Alternatively, you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Also remember to check out the eBay store and the Patreon, links to which can also be found in the description. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Will O'Connor, signing off.